death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. My name is Abdul Rahman Abdullah. I'm an artist. Uh, I'm mainly in sculpture and installation and Last year I did a big solo show as part of Perth Festival at John Kern Gallery here in Perth and it's uh, work called Pretty Beach. It was originally commissioned for a fairly major show in, at the MCA in Sydney. Basically I had the opportunity to show the work again because it's such a large work. It can only really be shown in you know, quite large institutional spaces. So talk to me about the inspiration behind that piece of art. Okay, so the work itself, like I said, it's called Pretty Beach and Pretty Beach is, uh, is a place, it's a location, it's actually... I guess it's actually the suburb name. Um, it's where my granddad lived. Um, it's a it's a beachside area in on Central Coast, uh, just north of Sydney, um, on Brisbane water. So there's these big inlets and bays. Really beautiful part of the world. Um, and my granddad lived in a house we call it the Beach House because it actually started off as a beach house. It's basically this asbestos house right on the water there, and there's a big jetty out the front. Um, but it's about a 50 metre jetty, so it's quite a long jetty and high tide the water would come right up and underneath the house, you know, it's just like a really beautiful place to live and he was so, I guess, connected to that place because it's the only place I knew him living in, I guess, just because that's how our lives overlapped. Um, so <laughs> the thing about the work, it's been a while since I've actually talked about the work, but it's one of the most, I guess, the most uh, significant works I've done to, at, the, to, at this stage. Um, back in 2009, uh, my granddad killed himself. He took his own life. And he was, he was, you know, he's an old man. He was, he had suffered from severe diabetes. He was a chain smoker his whole life. He was like basically a functional, happy alcoholic. You know, that's my other memories of him are, you know, just the, the smell of cigarettes and, you know, he'd always be drinking a beer and that's just, you know, he was very, he was like, he was my dad's stepdad. So he was like, sort of this archetypal white Australian guy, I guess, you know, very much a product of his era. Um, yeah, he took his own life, but it, was, it wasn't a tragedy in the sense that, you know, the, you know, the word suicide points to this idea of tragedy because it was basically, a, you know, an act of euthanization. He, you know, he'd lived such an independent life and he'd always been so self-sufficient and when it got to the point where his body wasn't going to allow him to, you know, to carry on in the way he was, he wanted to, he chose to end it. Did any of you see it coming? No, not at all. Well, um, I mean, the, the one, one, one of the tragedies about it, I guess, is I hadn't been there for so long, and it had probably been almost ten years since I'd been there. You know, as you go, as you go into adulthood, life takes over, um, and you know, the idea of crossing another one, no, you wouldn't necessarily drive across. It just seemed further and further away the older I got, I guess. And you don't think about these things. I didn't even realise how, you know, advanced his cancers, various cancers were and how sick he actually was. Because, um, you know, like many men of his vintage, he didn't talk about that sort of thing. He didn't talk much at all, to be honest. 
Um, but I guess for me, that memory, that association of, you know, something being so alive and something just being in their element and then being taken away from, from me, not necessarily being just taken away, but taken away from me, yet carrying on regardless. You talked about the memories yeah. that it brought yeah. back to you, you know, if you yeah. were a child and going to see granddad and, and associating with that. Oh, place. yeah, that was the whole sort of starting point for this work. Basically, it was a place which was, it was quite a special place, but we, as kids we would only go there maybe every couple of years because we would um, make the trek over east, you know, and we would drive over the Nullarbor, as is in the 80s. Um, I don't think we ever went there in the 90s. It was mainly in the 80s, basically when I was growing up, between, you know, about 3 and 12, those, those ages. Um, so we would drive over every couple of years, then we would make the trek up to Pretty Beach to see Grandpa. And this, this basically the strongest uh, memory I always had of the place is, I would have been probably about 8 or 9, sometime in the mid-80s, um, out on the jetty in high tide and just watching the stingrays uh, come, coming in from swimming directly underneath me, swimming these big arcs right underneath the jetty. And there's something really special about being in the presence of wild animals, you know, um, basically being allowed to be within a certain proximity. I mean, I was out above the water, though below it. I had really no impact on what they were doing. But, you know, when you're that close and you're able to witness them in there in just, you know, you know, in a natural state, I suppose. It's really transporting. It sort of takes you out of time and place and you don't want it to end. It's almost a privilege that you've been allowed to participate in something. Um, so I just have these very vivid memories of watching them for ages swimming around and then this, um, then the rain came in across the bay. Um, and when you see rain come in from a distance like that, you can really, you can watch it coming. It's like a curtain coming across to you. And you know, basically when it hit it, you know, when the rain came in, uh, you know, it crumples up the water and it's just, these stingrays were taken away from my view. They just weren't, you know, I wasn't able to access them, I guess, in that way. Um, but for them, nothing changed for them. Like I said, you know, they're not going to get any wetter in the rain. They just continued on and I ran inside because rain is cold. <laughs> um, and it was just like this, and I don't even know how long this takes. It was a few minutes out there just being with the stingrays. But that memory was just always the one I went back to and was what I associated most with going to visit Grandpa. It's funny because, you know, I've got very strong memories of Grandpa, but um, it was this one which came, for me, came to signify the place. That became, as a placeholder memory, it came to embody how I wanted to view his passing or how he died. Um, and a lot of it comes back to, you know, oh, sort of tropes of, you know, souls and afterlife and what happens, you know, when, when you die and, you know, these sorts of things. But I didn't want to get too caught up in, you know, these, um, uh, in these ways of seeing it. I just wanted to sort of focus on the idea that something carries on. It's just taken away from me, um, you know, and that can, that can stand in for, for, you know, you can take that any way you want as, you know, it's just, the essence of who it was, I like to think of it. Is it carried on in some way, shape or form? I don't know, but it's it's an ending, but it's not an ending, if you know what I mean. It's like, mm -hmm. I just didn't want to regard it like that. Was it saying that his passing was monumental or that the whole, you know, life and death experience is monumental? Well, I guess for me, it was it was a work about him and his, in the pl you know, the place that I associated so much with him. But... I wanted to step back from, you know, that, uh, that, that individual view of you know, death and just sort of see it as a, a way of describing or embodying the idea of death in, 
in an experience, I guess, for people. And I mean, that's one of the part of the beauty of making, you know, large scale sculpture or installation works where you can really immerse people in the idea and create something that they are, you know, always physically or bodily a part of because, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a group of 11 stingrays swimming in a circle with this installation of uh, rain coming down from the ceiling, five meter drops of, uh, and each drop is, um, it's about two and a half thousand drops, I think. Each drop is five metre length of silver plated ball chain with a crystal on the end. So it creates this, you know, this very ethereal column, you know, and underneath which is this real sense of movement of these stingrays um, moving in a circle. And there's a, a soundtrack of like rainfall in there, which you don't necessarily notice straight away. It's a bit of a subtle one, but when you're in the space with the work, then, you know, then it sort of, it sneaks up on you, I guess, and, and that really contributes to a sense of immersion. Yeah, I love that work, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just one of, the, one of the things I really like about sculpture. You can put your people in the presence of something and let them go walk amongst it. And the way I work, most of, most of my work is, you know, animals are a huge part of my visual language, but a big part of that is making things in a fairly realistic way and things that are, you know, recognisable and at the same scale as people entering the space. Basically, when I, I made the work for, there's a big uh, biennial project called The National, which is, uh, you know, about 50 Australian artists. It's sort of a snapshot of Australian art for that biennial period, which was, you know, for me, it's one of the biggest shows I've been a part of at that time. It was only me and one other artist in this huge space um, but I walked in there and it was, a, it was Mr. Williams, um, is a, an elder from the APY lands. Um, it's this huge painting on the wall, it's a big ogre painting done on an old poster office. But a, you know, it's, it speaks to like, speaks to genocide, it speaks to, you know, central Australia, it speaks to like the little heart of Australia. Um, but there's a little vase of flowers in front of him. I walked in and I was like, oh no, you know, this is, um, you know, uh, this is a bad sign. Um, and it turned out that he had passed away two weeks earlier, you know, just before this, you know, the biggest painting he'd ever done was going to be on show at the MCA, etc. So his, his, some of his family were there and that. But this room became this monument to, to passing, to death, you know. It was these two massive works about, you know, which became about death. Mine was specifically about death, but, you know, Mr. Williams had, you know, he had just passed on. And one of the, I guess the, I mean, it's not something you can plan for, you know, but, you know, my work was this rain and this, this, uh, you know, this soundtrack, it was so wet, it was from the central coast, New South Wales, and this work was from, you know, the, the dry heart of Australia, and it was all ochres and so dry, you know, you feel your eyeballs drying out just looking at it. And it was also very hard work, you know, pointing to genocide and all these things. Um, and so for me, that room became this sort of almost this embodiment of the extremes that uh, Australia represents, the many countries that is actually Australia, um, sort of embodied in this, in this one room, which I felt really, it was sort of went beyond me that it was really special to be able to participate in that, I guess. Were you emotional? You know what? Yes and no, because I was, it's quite removed. You know, the actual fact of making the work is like five months of carving 11 stingrays. It's, it's labour, you know. When, the only, when I actually got emotional was talking about it and the bit that always got me is that I know that when, like basically when they found Grandpa, he had with him all our letters as a kid, and I still get a bit, I get a bit teary down. So that always gets me. He had our letters and our photos, and we'd send him pictures, you know. And he had them all with him as he died, and I was like, it, it, I mean, a big part of that is like, I felt 
I kind of let him down and hadn't been there for so long. But on the other side, I was glad that, you know, that he had loved ones that he could, well, that he was able to sort of be with at the end in some way, shape or form, you know, which was, um, that's the bit which always gets me when I talk about it. And I, and I wouldn't always necessarily talk about that because, but that, that's like the real connection for me is that he was thinking about us, you know, at that point. And like, I would have had no idea what was going on at that time. Um, but yes, that real sort of personal connection to it, I guess. That's what always got me, you know, got the tears going. So when you think about it, when you, you know, I can visualize that when you're describing it, it's a huge act, isn't it? So oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like it would be it's such an act of bravery, I say it too, because, you know, you'd make that decision. And his body was not, you know, he's made that decision because he was, his legs were going to be, um, Basically, he's going to lose the lose his legs to diabetes, um, and so he would have really had to drag himself out there, and you know, and then set all this up. It would have taken him a while, and he'd probably in great pain and discomfort. But like you know, he he decided what he was going to do, and he was going to carry it out. He wasn't going to basically he wasn't going to make a hash top of it. He was going to do it. Um, do you, yeah. do, you th- do you think then that death at the end is something that happens that you do alone? Oh yeah, I get it. Really is, and from my few experiences of it, that actual, and I have been there when people have died for in other in other ways, and it's just I've heard the last breaths, you know, of um, there was only one person, but you hear it quite literally. It was sort of there was quite a loud one, and then there was no more, and then you hear everyone else, you know, and that's just it's not it's it's not pleasant, you know, hearing people respond to their mother or their wife or whatever actually you know literally dying um but it is because i mean from those experienced people aren't even conscious necessarily you know their body is on its way out um so my granddad he was very much alone but that's what he would have wanted that's how he lived his life he lived up there alone for decades and so like that's you know he chose that um which, you know, is quite reassuring in some ways for, for in that particular case where he chose. And I guess when I do talk about it and have talked about it publicly, this work, even that that you know, suicide aspect, the euthanization, that is people have come up to me and said, you know, that was their experience too. And, you know, of their parents or grandparents or even partners where that has been a big part of it and it has really added to their sense of burden that they couldn't really, even if, feeling very comfortable they couldn't necessarily tell all the details of what happened for you know for legal reasons um which just really it's such a burden on people i think you know when knowing that somebody wants something and can't necessarily have it they were i guess people were almost relieved and happy in a way that someone was able to do that you know unencumbered or like they were just able to carry it out you know and it was because they were, he was just there by himself because really is if he wanted to do that and someone else was there the chances are that they would be trying to stop him from doing that you know and it's not it's i guess it's not necessarily a good or a bad it's just a thing you know for them it's a bad thing obviously but like yeah it's just complicates it all while being sort of a big part of the end i think well, it's like, you know, it, it does make you think, you know, what would you do in the in the same situation? But, like, you know, so I don't want to dwell on that. It may or may not come up and then I'll dwell on it. <laughs> <laughs> so as a society, Abdul, mm. we're, we, we find it quite difficult to talk about death openly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's 
almost the last taboo. Um, and and yet, talk me through some of the uh, you know reactions that people had to that mm. pe- that piece of work because you were very open that this was after the death yeah, yeah. of your granddad um, when he took his own life. Well, it's funny enough. It was there was the sort of idea was floating around my head for many years before I actually got. It was ten years after he he died that I actually made the work. So, and that's not uncommon with the way I work, but with this particular one, it's sort of you really have to sit with an idea for you know quite a while until you go, okay, now I'm ready to do this. And and more than any other work I've ever made, the reactions to to it was so. Um, so emotional, I guess. The I've had a lot of people contacting me, and you know, either after a talk or just you know messaging me through my website or any other means about how they cried, you know, and spent a lot of time with the work. And as an artist, you know, if all you're after is for people to spend time with your work, that is the you know, if the people the people give it time, then the work has worked, you know, it's, it's succeeded. But people would. People went back and visited it several times over and got really, you know, genuine emotional responses because they really brought up, you know, brought up you know, a lot of memories and a lot of, you know, reflected their current experiences. Or and like I said, with a lot of the talks, you can it was, you can just almost guarantee that you know a certain amount of people in that room are experiencing death in some way, either a recent death or an imminent death, or you know. You know, a parent or a loved one in the, in the process of dying, and it's just such a normal part of the human experience. And yeah, for kids, complete strangers to sort of come up and you know talk about the you know the the hardest things they've ever experienced was uh, it wasn't confronting or challenging. It was confronting in one way, but not in a bad way for me because it was so people were being very vulnerable and open, and I didn't necessarily expect that. Um, you know, and part of me goes, great, the work has worked, but the other part of me is like, it's really, it's a beautiful thing to be able to provide something, provide a space that people can let you into what's going on in their life. And I'm, you know, a lot of these people are completely strange. A lot of these people were, you know, quite elderly and things like that, which you wouldn't necessarily approach a stranger and talk about your partner dying, you know? And it's like, and for me, it wasn't even that I was discussing it with them. It was just I provided a space where they could tell me about it because, you know, there's not a lot I can add to it. You know, when someone is telling you about something like that, you know, you can you can smile and nod and offer, you know, noises basically, you know, not even words. But that's all that, you know, it wasn't like they wanted answers or anything. It was just provide a space where they could be, you know, what was inside could be outside in some way. Um, so I think... Part of it is also about being given permission, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Well, we have no sort of external signifiers that someone's even going through a grieving process. I mean, it's fairly common in, in, you know, around the world for different cultures to, you know, to embody it, to wear black or something, you know, those things are are a part of it. But here and now, I don't see that. You know, the only um, sort of the only signifier of death is the, the occasional hearse you'll see, and even that's very rare. You know, <laughs> even that is not, not necessarily a part of it, but that is literally the only way you'll encounter actual death. Um, other than the million deaths you'll see on TV and in movies over your lifetime, you know, it's like it's just completely been removed and fictionalized, I guess, um, dramatized, I, I suppose. Um, 
It's funny too, because I guess we're like trying to, talking about this through art, through a sculptural outcome, I guess the only other, um, you know, direct associations is basically mortuary sculpture, you know, headstones and gravestones and their long history of, of um, you know, ways of not describing death, but, you know, um, they just, they point to the idea, really, in in a similar way that TVs and movies sort of dramatise and fictionalise things. You might have angels or little cupids or, you know, something sad or an open book or something like this. Um, but again, you don't encounter those in on, on a daily basis. You know that they're very specific to a, a location, um, and it's not an it's not an inviting thing to be a part of. So it's yeah, it is um, it it's odd, but it's like it's odd in a in a vacuum way, in a silent kind of way, which is um, it, it's almost I feel like it hasn't been sanitized. It's been made so uncomfortable that you just don't go there. It's distasteful. Yeah. Go there, but for people who are sort of experiencing that and going through a certain process, um, I guess that's really isolated, you know. I mean, among their, you know, even their closest friends, families, and loved ones, there's no language to, to fall back on or to even, you know, to talk about it. And I guess more recently in 2020, um, my mother in law died. Um, and that was, uh, you know, after five years with cancer and all this, but it was something that, you know, we were very close and I, I'm very good friends with her. Um, and so that for me was much more of a uh, an up-close experience of someone dying than my granddad, you know, because this was someone who was in my life every day kind of thing. Um, and even coming from a very, you know, all the families involved were very close, you know, um, and all of that. Even then, the the language fell apart. Even people who'd who'd known her or known the family for decades had no way of, you know, talking about it or inquiring or you know any of those things. It was just so a weird, uncomfortable vacuum. Yeah. And no one knows what to do in that space. I mean, there's you know, there's the funeral and there's all of that, the okay. rituals that we do go through, but. You know, life goes on before and after that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's just, um, you know, I guess it, it's not strange because it's not unexpected, but when you're sort of in amongst it and seeing it all up close, it's like you're sort of in the presence of so much nothing. Well, I guess for me, um, you know, I was born and grew up here in Australia and, you know, my dad is um, white Australian, Anglo, um, and I'm seventh generation here through him, so you know, for a non-indigenous, quite a long time in the country. My mum is from Malaysia, and she's Malay. I do know that when my mum first came to Australia in 1971, she had a really hard time. You know, you imagine, you know, how Australia was. It still is, you know, the sort of entrenched structural racism and the, just the real bigotry you'll experience as a as a woman of colour. You know, a woman in a headscarf of colour. You know. And she came in 1970, so I'm, I'm mixed and I've always seen who I am as, I guess, almost cultural cherry picking. I've always felt I've had the privilege of taking what I want and discarding what I, you know, didn't see necessary. And that's one of the values, I guess, of everything being such a mixed bag here. I've always felt quite comfortable doing that. Having said that, I've been quite dislocated from my extended family and family in Malaysia now, so I haven't been there for any of those... Uh, Rituals. I haven't been there for any of that grieving process, and I mean, big part of that is, you know, in traditionally for Muslims, you're you're buried within 24 hours of dying. So that's been a quite a hard thing for Mum because she's got to a certain age now. She's 72 now. That 
next well, last two years. We don't count because of COVID, no tra- no travel. But um, you know, so she got to the point where she's like, you're only going back for when people die, you know. And this is a real common experience for migrant um, people, you know. Um, but because it all happens so quick, she would generally miss, you know, the actual funeral and things like that. So I've never been a part of that, never seen it. And ironically, most of the funerals I've ever been to have been, you know, Catholic. And, you know, um, yeah, they really have, or they're all completely non-denominational. Um, so, but the crux of the thinking around death and dying for all of those sort of Abrahamic cultures is there's a lot of common ground, you know, there's all like, basically you die, your soul gets plucked out, they weigh up the good and the bad and they send you up or down, you know, and that is, that is still, you know, at the, the heart of it, that's, you know, the, the basis of how Muslims would, would approach that as well. Your soul leaves and goes to heaven or hell. Um, but I, I don't know, as a kid, I was much more enveloped in, you know, we grew up as a very practicing Muslim family and I'm very much Muslim now, but I, pick and choose when and how I might embody that. And I have got my own rules about the rules, <laughs> which is mainly, I don't feel like much of them apply. It's up to me. Um, you know, so, but even as a kid, I never really wanted, I didn't see the value in really trying to conceptualize what heaven and hell and a soul and all that really were. Cause I was from very young, I felt like, this isn't a question that will get answered when we die and it's it's inevitable and there's not a lot of point in really trying to focus on this. Um, I guess one of the big things as a Muslim kid is this idea, I mean, Muslims can, you know, it can, comes across quite dramatic, the language is very dramatic, but there was always the idea of the day of judgment. Um, and basically this was this day that would occur sometime in a non-specific future um, where everyone who's ever lived will be, you know, basically pulled up and yeah, quite literally your good deeds and your bad deeds would be weighed up in front of everyone and you would go to, you know, Jannah or Jahannah, you know, heaven or hell. And that, that was, you know, it was a really, you know, scary idea as a kid. And I mean, I know why these things are in place, you know, these sort of big overarching ideas of good and bad and how they're, you know, meant to impose a certain morality on human beings because, by and large, they might, you know, people may or may not need that. But it was a very dramatic and scary way of thinking about what happens when you die. It also had not a lot to do with actually dying. I guess what I wanted to take out of all those, you know, those traditions and those beliefs is the idea that you are not necessarily your physical body. You know, you know, call it a soul or call it an essence or a consciousness, whatever you want to call that. Who we are is not necessarily a part of, you know, what you see. They're separate. They're, they're able to be separated. So I really do feel that who we are doesn't blink out of existence when our body packs it in. It goes somewhere, it does something. I'm just, I'm not sure what that is. And that's what I wanted to say with the work, you know, that who we are, and that may just be a memory. It may just be like who we are to everyone that, that's still here, you know. Um, but I wanted to do something that could be all of those things. It could be, you know, the, the passage of a soul. It could be the memory of someone. It could be, you know, this idea of a, a, a life or a vitality that um, carries on in another way. So, it's, you know, it's, it, obviously death is just a part of life. Do you think about um, your own mortality ever? Not really. It doesn't seem a very useful thing to dwell on. 
now that I've got kids, you know, of course you, you know that you they are going to outlast you, ideally. Um, but, you know, that, that's not something I actually think about a lot. It doesn't seem to be any good reason to. It also seems like a bit of a bummer. <laughs> I mean, you think about, you know, you plan a will, you, you imagine, you know, what the, you know, how you might be remembered every now and then. But if, I guess it's, that's probably going to sound a bit, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds narcissistic, but as an artist, you do leave more of a trace because I mean, I'll spend like I mean, decades of my life like, literally making objects that will remain and are hopefully archived, you know, as part of collections and that, so they will remain. Whereas it becomes really apparent when people pass on, depending on the life they've led, is what they leave behind. And for the most part, it's, you know, they just leave people behind, you know, and that's, that's very normal. Um, so coming back to that, but like, you know, especially with my mother-in-law, I guess more so than my, my grandpa, because he was quite, you know, removed. But I do like to talk about her. And, you know, she's very, you know, my wife and, and her mum were really close. And talk about her with the kids. Our kids are so little, and she only met two of them. Um, but talk about her as if you know, like, as if like, like she's a person and a presence. You know, I just really feel uncomfortable about the idea of someone dying, and then they just are erased. They just blink out of existence. Nobody even references them because it's uncomfortable. And you know, by the time the sort of discomfort has passed, the time has passed. Um, I just want to make sure that I just talk about it as if she is a real thing, you know, because <laughs> she, she certainly is. Um, good thing is she also left a trace. She was, she was a vet and then she became a furniture maker and an artist. So there are objects she's left behind, you know, basically, you know, grandma made this. Um, so there's associations which can be made for the kids. Once somebody passes, as you say, it becomes uncomfortable. It becomes uncomfortable to actually talk about that person. Do you think oh, that's yeah. a societal, you know, sort of safe, safeguard that, that's been put in place because people just feel too uncomfortable to talk about death or it's too sad or too... Well, I guess, again, my experiences of it more recently, it's it's almost bureaucratised, it's, it's medicalised, it's like, you know, even to the point where it's very unusual to die in your home nowadays and, in fact, it's quite complicated, you know, you have to go through an entirely different process if that happens um, and... You know, like like many natural processes, you know, particularly you know health related things. Birth, you know, is the big other one. Obviously, it's the big counterpoint, but it is the same thing where it has been entirely medicalized and sanitized and removed from, you know, from domesticity. It's been removed from you know the home as much as possible. In fact, you know, you really got to fight to do that. Um, I guess it's a way of um, you know. Just categorizing, understanding, and making something, giving something a, uh, a, a what, what would you call it? You know, so it fits a form. You know, so it can be processed on mass. I guess we well, you know one size fits all way of uh, dealing with something, which is clearly not that. Um, it's a way of streamlining big populations, I suppose, and a way of um, documenting it, and it must be. Ve- I mean, I guess it is very isolating for people. You know, I even, like, you know, when, um, when my wife was going into, you lose, you know, you lose your mum, which is a very, nearly everyone will go through that at some point. 
But immediately after, like you're just sort of expected to go back to a, a life, go back and continue on because you got to do that anyway. But you know what's going on inside is so enormous and all encompassing. It can really leave people very isolated in 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 a bad place. I don't know if you do. So, a bad so, place, so, but, so, do you think yeah. that we? don't know how to do grief well no so we just don't know how to do it well that's what i felt you know we just there, there was no nothing no, no nothing to lean on and maybe that's where you know rituals and and you know established ways of going about something really help people um you know for like longer grieving processes things like that sort of much more public grieving processes so even i guess australia is a very mixed bag but I think a lot, a core of our bureaucracy and the way we approach things is, you know, based on, um, you know, on, on on deeply felt Anglo culture. It's very unemotional. It's very cold, I guess. That's the way I feel about it anyway. And that that's the basis of, you know, our, our official way of doing things, people. <laughs> Literally, I don't know. That, that's the way I see it anyway. It's like a really unemotional, like, you know, emotional responses are, are, are you know, a weakness, you know. And guess, you know, people would never cry in public or never, like, you know, even sort of reveal what they're feeling publicly. Okay. At the same time, you know, I've been to a lot of, yeah, well, a few Italian weddings and, you know, they have, there are very different public grieving processes that happen you know and where the nonnas and the aunties would be crying and would be collapsing and would be like and in some way it's performative it's not always but it, it is that too but it's also it, it serves a purpose and it serves a reason thanks for listening this interview was recorded on the lands of the wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders past present and emerging This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.